I wanted to thank the choir for singing Abide With Me. It's one of my favorite hymns because, and it's too long a story to tell, but uh, one of the the most, uh, one of my most favorite days that I have ever lived was in uh, Mbale, Uganda. Um, and at the end of that day, we sang that hymn, and it has, it has been a blessing to me ever since. It's a surprise of God's providence that someone from Mbale, Uganda, is here with us this, e- this morning. So... Um, I'll um, look forward to telling that story one, time, one day. Let's pray. Lord God, we, as your word has been opened and read, and as I have the responsibility to proclaim it, I ask that you would um, use your word in the lives of your people Lord, I pray you would sanctify us in Christ Jesus. I pray that if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus, that you would bring them to, uh, to yourself by your, the proclamation of your word and your spirit working in their hearts. Pour out your spirit, we ask. Be our teacher. We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. As I mentioned last week... I originally was going to preach on Luke 6, 1 through 11, but I decided to break the passage into two separate sermons. I'm glad I did, because I came to a clearer understanding of the major point of this passage. I uh, had thought that the, the major point was how to observe the Sabbath. And certainly there are important instructions on how to keep the Sabbath day Uh, unto the Lord. We saw some of those instructions last week. There are works of necessity, like preparing a meal, uh, as the disciples in verses 1 through 5 were taking the heads of grain and um, uh, taking the husk off the grain so that they could eat it. So works of necessity to prepare a meal, works of mercy, like caring for the sick, are necessary. We'll see that uh, here in verses 6 through 11. Um, And of course, uh, Jesus is in the synagogue on the the Sabbath day, worshiping God, and so it's a day set aside for worship. But I figured out that these lessons about the Sabbath are only incidental to what I think is the main point of the passage, the main point that the Holy Spirit uh, wants us to see from this passage. God wants us to see the outraged righteousness that is driving the hatred of the Pharisees and the scribes. Um, they're, They're driving their hatred towards Jesus. What do I mean by outraged righteousness? Shouldn't it be outraged unrighteousness? Well, I get the term from one of my favorite books, uh, Modern Times by Paul Johnson. I love studying 20th century world history. The 20th century was one of the most horrifying and appalling centuries in all of world history. The technological advances of those 100 years 
made the killing that much more efficient. In World War II alone, the military plus the civilian deaths that that happened in World War II or as a result of World War II, there were 70 to 85 million people that were killed during uh, that war. World War I, uh, civilian and military deaths combined, 17 million. That's a lot of people. And most appalling is the fact that well over, um, significantly over 100 million people were murdered by their own governments. Although many despots murdered their citizenry to establish their dictatorships, the two most guilty countries were China and the Soviet Union as they instituted communism. Those two countries alone um, totaled over 100 million people that were killed by their own governments. And so Paul Johnson outlines how all this came about in his book. And I think this book is, very, is a very important book for helping us to understand the 21st century in which we are living presently. Um, but I'll warn you, by the time that you finish reading all 1,000 pages of that book, you will come to despise the political elite for the way that they have manipulated um, the nations over the past 100 years. Sorry for the rabbit trail. I first heard about this book um, in a sermon that a pastor was preaching, and I thought, well, I would recommend it to you if you um, would like to do some reading. Um, the, The quote... Outraged righteousness comes from modern times. And here's the quote in the context. It is, it is a commonplace that men are excessively ruthless and cruel, not as a rule um, or as a rule of malice, but from outraged righteousness. How much more is this true of legally constituted states invested with all this seeming moral authority of parliaments and congresses and courts of justice? The destructive capacity of an individual, however vicious, is small. Of the state, however, or of the state, however well-intentioned, is almost limitless. Expand the state and expand the destructive capacity that comes along with it. Collective righteousness is far more ungovernable than any individual pursuit of revenge. Putting aside Johnson's point about the collective power of the state, his point about outraged righteousness is that the most um, ruthless, the most cruel acts in history are motivated not from people wanting to be ruthless and cruel, but from people who believe that they are doing what is right. They are so sure of their righteous position that they feel justified in their ruthlessness and their cruelty. The hundreds of millions that were killed in the 20th century were not killed in order to quench the bloodthirst of evil leaders, 
Rather, they were killed because the leaders so believed that their goals were important and righteous. And so in the minds of the scribes and Pharisees, this is why they feel justified in their hatred for Jesus. He's a Sabbath breaker. Therefore, they must hate him with outraged righteousness. I want to dig deeper into this idea of outraged righteousness as we look at our passage. So uh, look again at verses 6 and 7. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was, was there whose right hand was withered. And as the scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Jesus taught in the synagogues as he traveled around Judah. But if someone needed healing, he did not wait until everybody had left uh, and gone home and dealt with that person privately. Rather, he healed that person right in the worship service. And this reminds me, the session has a long-standing policy that we've not done, done a good job of announcing to the congregation. But if anyone would like prayer after the service, the session is more than eager to meet with you back in the church library for prayer. So just mention to me or one of the, the elders um, that you would like prayer, and uh, the, the elders will drop what they're doing and will go and pray with you. So uh, keep that... Um, in mind. Now back to the passage. The scribes and the Pharisees were there, but they weren't there to worship God. Rather, they wanted to see if they could catch Jesus in the act of healing on the Sabbath. The Pharisees and their man-made rules on how to keep the Sabbath declared that giving medical attention to someone who is not suffering a life-threatening condition was working. Excuse me. And therefore was not allowed to give medical attention on the Sabbath. So if you suffered a broken arm, uh, it could not be set until the Sabbath had ended. And so this man with a withered arm, well, he had this withered arm before the Sabbath. He'd have it afterwards. It wasn't a life-threatening condition. So, he surely should wait until the Sabbath had ended. But Jesus purposely challenged the inane uh, man-made Sabbath regulations that these scribes and the Pharisees had come up with. This outraged righteousness on the part of the scribes and the Pharisees is really a deep-seated hypocrisy. They were supposed to be in the synagogue to worship God, but instead, verse 7 says that they had come to see whether Jesus would heal on the Sabbath so that they might have a reason to accuse Him. You'd think that the Pharisees would have enough self-awareness that they'd be able to recognize their hypocrisy. Sadly, however, most people who, are, who practice outraged righteousness have no idea that they are acting wickedly. Richard Trench says, 
sin may be, may be collapsed so close to us that we cannot see its face. You know, it's got such a, a grip on us that we can't realize how sinful we are acting when we are practicing outraged righteousness. Sin has many ugly ways that it expresses itself in our lives. But this sin of outraged righteousness is one of the ugliest and most destructive. It's ugly because what it does is it puts a mask, uh, a mask of righteousness over our very ugly heart desires. And it, allow, and it, it allows us to express anger that would horrify us if we had not first dressed it up in virtue and uprightness. It is destructive because we are blind to it. We think we're doing what is right. We might even think that we're doing the Lord's work. That's what the Pharisees thought. It's destructive to ourselves. It's also destructive to others. Churches have been split and destroyed Because of someone's personal agenda, all dressed up as if it is the will of the Lord. Marriages have been devastated because a spouse only argues with outraged righteousness. He or she can't be wrong because they are always right. Nothing is resolved and the marriage does not grow because the issues are never fully addressed. James chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 is helpful in pulling back the curtain on the motives that drive outraged righteousness. James says, What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. When James mentions murder here, he's not speaking of actual murder, although it could lead there. James is applying what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember what he said, Matthew chapter 5? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to to judgment. When you boil it all, sorry, I'm having a hard time speaking this morning. When you boil it all down, outraged righteousness is not about righteousness at all. Uh, it's certainly not about love for your neighbor or for your spouse. And even though it might be dressed up in Bible verses, it is not about love for God either. It is about love. For self, outraged righteousness is ugly self-righteousness. So how does God deal with outraged righteousness? Well, as we look at this passage, he confronts it head on. He doesn't accommodate it. He doesn't sweep it under the rug because it's too hard to deal, um, to deal with a person's stubbornness. He hits it head on. Verses 8 through 10. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. 
and he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, or said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, or he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. The man with the withered hand did not approach Jesus. Rather, that man sitting out in the congregation, and Jesus called the man to come forward from out of the crowd. In other words, Jesus is very deliberately bringing this issue to a head. So he directly confronted the Pharisees by asking them, I ask you, as he's looking the Pharisees and the scribes right in their faces, right in their eyes, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or or to destroy it? Then in verse 10, it says that Jesus looked around at them all. I don't think he was scanning the whole congregation. I think he he was looking directly at the scribes and the Pharisees who were sitting at the front of the church because they would have had the honored seats. He looked at every scribe and Pharisee right in the face, and then he healed that man's withered arm. Mark's parallel account in uh, Mark chapter 3, the passage says, And Jesus looked around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart. Jesus was not primarily grieved because they were hating on him. Jesus did not need to be the, 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 the focus of, of attention. In other words, the matter what it wasn't because of their hatred of him that he was angered. Rather, Jesus is grieved at their basic lack of compassion for a man with a withered arm. He's grieved at their ugly self-righteousness. He's grieved at their spiritual blindness that prevented them from seeing their out-and-out Uh, hypocrisy. Yet Jesus put himself front and center (coughs) to receive all their outraged righteousness. Again, I want to stress, Jesus did not heal this man as a matter, as, as a course of events. In other words, the man didn't present himself to Jesus. Jesus saw the man, called the man out of the congregation looked at each scribe and each Pharisee right in the eye, and he healed this man as a direct rebuke to them, right to their face. He was willing to take all the sharp arrows of their hatred. And this was not the last time that Jesus would be so pointed in the way that he pointed out the outraged righteousness and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, an entire long chapter of Jesus giving woes to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. And for the sake of time, I'm only going to quote less than a third of that chapter. But listen to what Jesus said to these scribes and Pharisees right to their face. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. And that was the issue 
um, here with the Sabbath day. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Why would Jesus poke the hornet's nest? You know, why would he purposely, so pointedly, go after them? Isn't Jesus about love, peace, sunshine, lollipops? Look at the first part of verse 8. Verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. Jesus wasn't going to take a detour around their sinful motives. To make everybody um, happy, happy, happy. So that they could sing kumbaya or whatever. He goes directly after them. He placed his finger right on their ugly self-righteousness and then he began to press down. Jesus knows our thoughts too. He knows our motives. And he is willing to stir our basest and most ugly sins in order that we might be able to see our sins as clearly as he does. And of course, we'll never see our sins as clearly as he does because his gaze is is all penetrating. Jesus was trying to be merciful to these scribes and Pharisees and let them understand how heartless, how cruel they were to disregard this this, uh, man with a withered arm He also wanted them to see their hypocrisy. Jesus desires your repentance. And so he's willing to multiply your sins that you might flee to him in utter horror of the sinfulness that comes out of your heart. He wants you to flee to Him. He wants you to come to Him so that, because He knows that He can change you. He knows He can replace the outright, outraged righteousness with humble graciousness towards those with whom you disagree. He can replace the ugly self-righteousness with self-giving compassion toward others. He can so transform you that he can replace deep-seated hypocrisy with repenting self-awareness. Sadly, the scribes and the Pharisees were unwilling to come to Jesus for his transforming grace. Look at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The Greek word for fury... um, refers to an unthinking rage. 
is akin to an anger that was so out of control that it was a kind of madness. Such was their unwillingness to recognize their sin and flee to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we have a greater capacity to sin than we normally like to believe. There are things that can come out of our heart that would horrify us. There are things that do come out of our heart that horrify us. Remember what Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There are things that come out of our mouths that are horrifying, that are cruel. This passage is is a warning to us all. I'll never forget when I preached on Romans 3, verses 9, 9 through 18, and I'll read it real quickly. It says, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands. And usually that's where the, the, the gospel tracks stop. No one's righteous, no, not one. And it stops right there. But the sentence continues on for several verses. And the reason why they stop it is because they think that people might not read past uh, the next two or three verses. Well, here's the, the, the full passage. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And I remember this was my first uh, church I was serving as an assistant. And a little old lady named Mary Ann came up to me after the service and she said, I know that's in the Bible, but that's not true of me. And I said, well, Mary Ann, I'll pray for you. But this is a description of all humanity outside of Jesus Christ. And when we come to Jesus Christ, the flesh is still powerful. We will still use use outraged righteousness to try and, and manipulate people. To try and win our way. So brothers and sisters... Flee from all forms of self-justification and self-righteousness. Because self-justification and self-righteousness is the pathway toward outraged righteousness. Flee to Jesus Christ in humble neediness. Seek to be gracious towards those with whom you disagree. Seek to understand why they disagree with you. Rather than trying to manipulate them with your outrage so that they give in to you. Jesus loves those scribes and Pharisees. He loved them enough to be the object of their outraged righteousness. How do I know He loved them that much? Because Jesus loved them enough to become sin in the place of sinners on that awful cross. The sin of our outraged righteousness was hung around His neck and He died for our sins on the cross. He loves sinners, but make no mistake, he opposes outraged righteousness. 
He loves the unrighteous, but he stands in the way of the self-righteous. He will forgive all those who humble themselves and flee to him as we pray together. Lord Jesus, who among us can say that we are guiltless of trying to manipulate others with our anger? Maybe we didn't realize that that's what we were doing at the time. Lord, who among us is free from outraged righteousness, driven by our own self-righteousness? God, I ask that you would forgive us. I ask that you would put a guard on our tongue and on our anger. Help us to submit our anger to the Lord Jesus Christ for his sanctification. Father, I pray again, if there are any here who do not know the Lord Jesus, who are like Marianne, who are unwilling to uh, submit themselves to the Bible's evaluation, to God's evaluation of who they are outside of Jesus Christ. I pray you would humble them and bring them to Christ. Humble us all, God, as we bow our knees before King Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.